0: This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Raheli. And I'm Roberta Pissarro.
1: In a way, despite a looming recession, we see that the consumers have a kind of backlog uh, and a desire to spend on fashion.
0: That was senior partner Achim Berg talking about the resiliency of the fashion industry. He joins me to talk about it, but also points to signs of tough times ahead. After, anxiety tends to get a bad rap. But listen to author Tracy dennis Tuari, professor of psychology at Hunter College, to discover why anxious feelings deserve respect. Achim, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: That's my pleasure, Roberta. Thank you.
0: Achim, the world has changed a lot since we last published our State of Fashion report. Which of the recent trends have had the greatest effect on fashion and the textile industry?
1: I think Ukraine and the invasion into Ukraine is one of those topics. I think that was not fully on the radar in November, December And a lot of people didn't expect it. But that's not the only topic. I think we also didn't uh, even know that Omicron would be the dominant variant in the first half of 2022. We did not expect that uh, inflation would be a permanent challenge. We we somehow expected, even like many governments, that uh, this would be a temporary problem. We expected a supply chain would uh, normalize after two years of a pandemic, which also didn't uh, come true. We also didn't expect COVID as such would be a big challenge uh, in China again, because China looked like the big winner of the whole pandemic at the end of last year. So it's probably the challenge of writing uh, a report that tries to somehow predict or frame uh, the future, that things uh, turn out slightly different. But I think overall, we still uh, stayed to the forecasts and also to the topics that we identified to drive the industry in 2022.
0: From the panoply of issues that we've talked about, what challenges do suppliers face right now?
1: I think it's, it's very different challenges. I think depending on where we look, which country we look at, uh, you know, some are quite challenged. So the supplier side, you know, has a practical problem of delivering what is expected, but they are also facing issues of uh, forecasting in a proper way. Because we don't know exactly how the consumption patterns will develop. And the industry is always, uh, you know, a couple of months ahead of the consumer. So uh, you need to make some bets. And it's uh, in this environment, which is much more volatile than uh, what we have seen in the last 20 years, uh, it's very difficult to make the right bets.
0: Given the increased risk, or maybe it's sort of this perfect storm of risk all colliding together, how should companies respond? And what are some things that companies can do to hopefully end up on the right side of, of these big bets?
1: I think they should look for real partnerships with brands and closer exchange with the brands, because that would give them access to data and would make things, you know, more predictable. Uh, on the other side, it, it's probably worthwhile to, to think on how to flex the system to the maximum, because I think demand patterns are not as stable as they used to be, and brands and retailers will be forced to react more flexibly to these challenges. Uh, and the suppliers are just by definition at the receiving end. So they will have to increase even more of that flexibility. Cost pressures will continue, so they will likely have to work also on the cost side and also on their Tier 2 and Tier 3 suppliers uh, in the whole system.
0: What were some of the more interesting data that came out from different geographies?
1: I think on a global level, we've seen a faster recovery than what we expected 18 months ago. I think we had expected that the whole industry would only get back to 2019 levels at the end of 2022. And on a global level, uh, we achieved that already at the end of 2021. So you could argue that the fashion industry has shown more resilience and a faster ability to deal with challenges than what we had uh, expected. And maybe we were too conservative in the eye of the storm. That might be another explanation. But the recovery was also quite different, you know, by regions. Asia, with a very strong leadership of China, was the motor of the recovery right at the beginning. They had a very short dip and then they were doing quite well. Europe had the toughest uh, you know, challenge to deal with because they were lacking international travelers. And given the fragmentations of the markets, the recovery wasn't that fast and that strong. And North America, uh, was remarkable. I think we've seen a, a V-shape uh, recovery, which we had seen also after some of the financial crisis before, but we didn't expect to see here in the pandemic. So, so far, I think it was pretty diverse. If we now look forward, again, it's difficult to make predictions as we discussed right at the beginning of this podcast. China is currently um, you know, quite challenged uh, with a zero COVID policy it's reopening in important cities like shanghai but we don't know how long it will take to get a recovery here let's hope for the best because that's going to be very important in particular for the luxury part of the industry europe is currently doing better also because we see uh, you know travel coming back and north america you know is uh, still going strong so i think it will heavily depend on how long the Ukraine crisis is going to continue, how long that will impact the cost of energy, and uh, also how much stimulus the different governments will be able to provide after two years of continuous uh, stimulus uh, against the pandemic. So I think the jury is out. We will see and we should prepare accordingly uh, for some challenges to face.
0: During the height of the COVID-19 outbreak, we talked a lot about companies accelerating their use of technologies. Has this momentum continued?
1: I think technology plays a very important role. We also just published the new state of fashion technology report, which uh, tries to make an important point that we have to think technology really end to end. We used to focus more on the front end, uh, everything that was more consumer focused through e-commerce, through loyalty systems. But uh, we're realizing now that also the backend needs to be digitized for many reasons. We just spoke about the better ability to plan and to react, but also traceability from a sustainability point of view has become uh, more important and will become even more important going forward. So digitizing the whole supply chain end to end is a big topic uh, for many of our clients.
0: So thinking about the challenges now for brands. What sort of obstacles do these organizations face?
1: It all comes down to consumer demand. And as I said, I think we somehow had hoped that 2022 would mark the end of the pandemic, that a certain freedom would return that would allow people to celebrate, to entertain. And the fashion industry was very ready to dress the consumers exactly for that and i think to a certain extent uh, we see that uh, that is happening some of the categories that were hammered uh, throughout the pandemic like dresses like high heels even suits have a strong return in the first 6 months uh, or the first 5 months of this year we also expect that people uh, you know will do a lot of traveling i think europe is clearly returning to the whole vacation industry, I think with the Americans do the same. Asia as well, with the exception of China, that will drive consumption. So in a way, despite a looming recession and inflation rates of 7 to 8%, we see that the consumers have a kind of backlog and a desire to spend on fashion. And that is despite uh, Ukraine, which obviously has not been positive for consumption interests in Western Europe uh, these days. The problem is that uh, the energy bills will continue to increase. And I think we all don't know how long the conflict between Russia and the Western world will continue, uh, which will likely have a negative impact on the cost uh, of energy and uh, on the cost of living. And uh, so we realistically... We'll see a lot of consumers returning from vacation and from a great summer, realizing that everything has become much more expensive and that could hit larger parts of the fashion industry, in particular, the discount, the value and the mid-market segments. The jury is still out on, on how luxury will play out in this environment. We were all surprised how quickly luxury returned from the pandemic, mainly driven by China but also by a very strong recovery uh, and a fast recovery in the United States. The demand for luxury is super strong at this point uh, in the year. That's why I'm more concerned about the Christmas business and in particular, uh, the outlook for 2023.
0: So thinking about that, Achim, what should brands do?
1: brands should prepare for a likely recession. I think if the recession is not happening, I think we're all going to be positively surprised. But given the current inflation levels all around the world, driven by energy cost increases, and the fact that interest rates are increasing around the world, uh, what we're discussing with a lot of the clients is you know how to prepare for that. So on the one hand, having a robust plan for the demand side, and how can you flex uh, your system similar to the suppliers to uh, varying demands. I think the industry has been quite innovative in that respect uh, over the last two years of the pandemic. So this will somehow have to continue. And I think on the other side, the industry will have to manage cost. Many of the leading and the big players have started tackling that and reviewing the investment budgets, reviewing the cost structures and preparing for a challenging 2023, I think that is uh, what we're going to see and what uh, brands will have to focus on in the coming months.
0: Most companies in this industry have been challenged for several years now. So how do they respond to these disruptions and how do they find ways to invest in new technologies?
1: 2020 was the worst year from an economic profit point of view. I think since we have figures about this industry, so probably going back to the Great Depression, 2021 was a recovery year for many. In that respect, a more difficult 2022 and even more difficult 2023 you know, could have some devastating effects uh, to the industry. Our report also uh, shows that um, uh, profitability is more and more polarized uh, in the industry. In 2020, less than one third of the companies were value generating while two-thirds were value-destroying. So a longer recession and a more challenging environment will definitely lead to a shakeout in the industry. We also see that there is a a fraction of the companies that we call the super winners that are the top 20 performers of the industry. But also, you you could broaden that, let's say, to the top 20% of the industry that are quite healthy, that have already started to invest into technology, into digitization. They've invested into sustainability. They've invested into talent. Uh, you know all the things that you would want to invest to, and and they also have a more balanced, uh, more global business. So they will likely get better through the months ahead, without any question. I think uh, companies will have to do this transformation. You know, away from physical stores towards a more digital business model. And uh, they will have to find ways to redirect budgets into those areas. And that will be more difficult for for some than for others, which will likely lead to even more polarization in the industry.
0: Is sustainability one of those factors in thinking about how you're going to transform?
1: Sustainability is the big topic for the industry. It was the big topic before the pandemic hit. It continues to be the big topic. I always compare that. We're going through different stages. I think it took us a couple of years To really create awareness for the topic and for the industry to accept that sustainability is a big topic, not only on CO2, but also on worker rights, on worker conditions, pollution in a much broader sense. And I think the industry finally has accepted the challenge. A lot of companies now have made commitments, most of them until 2030. COP26 was a big gathering and event in that respect. But we're now heading into a phase where the industry has to to deliver against those promises. And that coincides now with a phase where we have likely limited budgets and more stress on the demand side. So without any doubt, it would have been much better in the end also for the planet, uh, you know, if we would have now a strong recovery after the pandemic, but that's unfortunately not what we are uh, facing. On the other hand, the planet can also not afford that the industry is not making progress. So in that sense, companies will have to do all of that. They will have to deliver against the ambitions of digitization, but also against uh, the demands of sustainability. The consumers uh, have become uh, more demanding in that respect. A lot of people have been at home throughout the pandemic. They had more time to think about their consumption patterns We've seen a big change uh, in particular in Western Europe, but also in North America, you know, how the consumers think about sustainability and what they demand from brands. And therefore, brands will have to do it all. It's it's not going to get any easier for brands and the whole industry in the next 18 to 24 months.
0: In the report, you talked about the use of digital product passports that contain information about how the products came into being and their impact on the environment. Do you think digital product passports are a good tool to help brands reach their sustainability commitments?
1: I think product passports in our annual report, but also traceability in our new tech report, are I think the the, the two big topics when it comes to sustainability. Digitization will be a key lever here, A, to provide the required uh, transparency along the whole value chain but also to provide that information to an ever more demanding consumer on the other side who wants to have that transparency. And let's not forget there's even a regulator out there that will request that transparency. So the supply chains are very complex. There's a, you know different stages. It's happening in emerging markets. It's transported in most cases, at least around half of the world. So all of that requires the use of technology to provide the transparency and the reliability that you need to drive the business.
0: What are the lessons that companies can take from some of these top companies in our research?
1: Super winners have been outperforming the industry now for many, many years. That has led to the level of polarization that we, uh, we have at the moment. We also expect that the top players will get stronger out of the next crisis we are facing. That's just naturally given the resources they've built, but also given the brands and the business systems they have built. So I think they are they are a constant inspiration for the rest of the industry. Not all of what they do, you know, can be replicated because many uh, players at the bottom of the performance have uh, challenges uh, to fund some of the things that the top performers are doing. I think it comes down to the old things. It's It's about big brands. In most price segments, you need to be a brand. You need to be active in different geographic regions to balance a bit your risk it helps to also operate across uh, different uh, product categories a higher share of digital and you know a more consistent use of data you know are clearly beneficial to the performance and then lastly it's the fashion industry so if you put your chips on uh, on the right trend and if you have uh, the brand heat that you wish for of course, you're going to do better, and and you can be like uh, Phoenix from the ashes over the next couple of seasons. That's the beauty of the industry, and uh, we see some you know strong brands now that were not that strong before the crisis. So it's not only a sliding scale for many, which it is uh, unfortunately is, but there's always uh, some renewal and innovation and hope. So we're going to see some surprises over the next 24 months without any question.
0: This has been great stuff. Thanks so much, Akeem, for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Roberta, for having me.
0: And now let's hear from Professor Tracy Dennis-Tiwari, featured in our author talk series about her new book, Why Anxiety Is Good For You Even Though It Feels Bad.
2: The core message of the book is we mental health professionals have unintentionally given people some damaging information when it comes to anxiety. First, it's that anxiety is always, every experience of it, a debilitating experience, it's dangerous, and it's even something we should think of as a disease. That means that the solution would be to prevent it and eradicate it and uh, destroy it at all costs, like we do any disease. The problem with that when it comes to anxiety is that That is literally a recipe for making anxiety worse. There's a paradox with anxiety. The more we avoid, the more it tends to spiral out of control. Anxiety can be very intense, very extreme even, but that doesn't mean that it's an anxiety disorder. We're looking at anxiety as a problem to solve, but anxiety is a feature of being human. So fear is the present certainty. We're absolutely certain that right now we're in danger. But anxiety is not that. Anxiety is apprehension about the uncertain future. By anchoring us into the future tense, this ability to actually think into the future, not only protects us, but it actually also makes us more persistent, more innovative, more creative, and more socially connected. Because anxiety is an emotion that actually evolved to translate and to navigate the uncertain world. And of course, there's nothing so certain in the human condition as uncertainty. So when we're anxious, we actually have higher levels of dopamine in our brain. Dopamine helps us move towards positive outcomes. It also triggers our social bonding hormone, oxytocin, that hormone that increases when we're with someone we love. It's one of the ways that we biologically bond to each other. And when we're anxious, that hormone shoots up. Why? Because social connection, social bonding, is one of the best ways that we manage our anxiety In the book, I also talk about a three-part framework for doing something with anxiety, for working with it. One is that we remember that anxiety is information and we need to listen to it. Two is that sometimes it's not useful information. We can learn to tell the difference. And when we do know that it's not useful anxiety, we can use those great tools out there to let go and immerse ourselves in the present moment, get help through therapy, do those things that help us scale back from the future tense. And the third guideline is to really hitch that anxiety, that information we're getting about what we want in the future, what we care about, hitch it to purpose, hitch it to something that really matters to you, that gives your life a sense of meaning.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahilly, And I'm Roberta Fassaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.